Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Yes, we live in a wonderful country, and Labor Day reminds us that this country was built on free labor of people who were working to get ahead. It is not built on forced labor as other countries have been. Of course, we had that chapter in our history that we're not proud of, but um, we have much to be proud of. And um, we do pay respect to those who have worked so hard to make this a great country. Last message, I imagine uh, most of you were here, and you know, not the cheeriest message in the world, so I want to try to get a smile out of you anyway. It does get better. You have to listen to what... Uh, Solomon is saying carefully because he throws in some good news here and there. And it's really not until the end of the book that he takes the time to explain really what he's saying and with some very profound conclusions. So, and we'll come back again and get to the end of the book eventually, I'm sure. But uh, right now we're going to begin in chapter two. So if you were here last hour, we covered chapter one. And now we're going to cover chapter two about chasing the good life. Does Tampa have a slogan that goes with your city? What is it? Cigar City. <laughs> the Cigar City. Okay, that's what it is. Where we live, our small town of Burleson on the south side of Fort Worth, the, the saying is for the good life. And when you think of a city like New Orleans, you have uh, uh, laissez les bon temps roller. Uh, let the good times roll. Um, and now when I think of Tampa, I'll think of Cigar City. <laughs> I have noticed the cigars. Um, but we all want to have a good life. We all want to have a good life. We all want to sometimes chase a good life. We live in a world where the philosophy is if it feels good, do it. Party on. Let the good times roll. Um, but do we ever really catch the good life with that attitude? What would make the good life for you anyway? Would it be the latest things? Would it be uh, a fine wine or wine in excess, maybe? Uh, or a bigger home and a better location? For most people, what makes a good life is not built on uh, experiences as much as it is on how we interpret the experiences. Most people are not, do not enjoy a good life because of success, but because they have learned to find significance and transcendence. By transcendence, I mean they've learned to uh, rejoice in something beyond this life and beyond this world. Chapter 1 talked about life under the sun, which is where we are in the world of humans on a horizontal level. But there's a vertical level of life over the sun where God holds the keys to life. And when we learn to live a transcendent life that is in touch with him, that's where we find, I think, true life and true happiness. So some people are looking for that significance and transcendence in life. Um, they want to have a sense of eternality and um, they want to have a life of contentment. And not a life of futility, but a life of fulfillment, a deep down happiness that we call joy, an abiding joy, no matter what the circumstances. And some people try to fill that emptiness with many things. 
the feeling of insignificance, the feeling of futility, the feeling of depression, or whatever. They try to soothe the conscience that's nagging them with many things. Solomon did also. He looked for fulfillment, but without God. Now, you say, well, Solomon had everything going great for him. Well, you know, he did, but, but uh, Kings tells us, the book of Kings tells us that near the end of his life, he married a lot of women, and then he started to worship their gods. So he had a lot to regret also. And we don't know exactly where he wrote this in the chain of events, um, but we can learn from his wisdom. So the theme of uh, chapter one was that life looks meaningless, but when we don't understand life, we trust the one who made life, God. And uh, Solomon is looking for that fulfillment in chapter two, but without God. And so he's doing an experiment and he's taking us along with him. Okay, you ready to go and, and do an experiment with Solomon? And I imagine since he was a man of means and could do anything he wanted to, could purchase anything he wanted to, could try anything he wanted to, and yet had also wisdom, because he says wisdom guided him in some of these experiments, that he took a very careful approach to it. He didn't just hit a bottle and start guzzling it down. I imagine he bought the best of drink and uh, savored it and uh, did what he could to get out of it, experimenting along the way. So in verse 1, he says in his heart, Come now, I will test you with myrrh. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. So he's now going to look in mirth, or that which causes amusement and fun and pleasure. And he concludes, he tells us the conclusion to that experiment is vanity. He says in verse 2, I said of laughter, madness and of mirth, what does it accomplish? So all of the comedy in the world, all of the things that are given to distract us from the reality of life, all the funny things on YouTube and all the cat videos that are out there, they're, they're nice for a time, but they still leave us in this world of futility. So a, uh, a clown goes into a psychiatrist explaining that uh, uh, he, he knows this guy who's depressed and thinking about killing himself. And the psychiatrist says, who is that? And, and the clown says, it's me. He was a sad clown. He has his own problems. It is said that Jerry Lewis had a plaque in his dressing room that read like this. There are three things that are real. You know, the late Jerry Lewis, comedian. He said, there are three things that are real. God, human folly, and laughter. And since the first two are beyond our comprehension, we must do what we can with the third. So he gave his life to comedy, to helping people escape the realities and absurdities that were around them that they could not figure out. And comedy does relieve our boredom and our grief for a time. And for those who think that this world offers nothing that really matters and it's all futile, well, then why not have a good time? Why not have fun? But, you know, it's sadly, many of the comedians that have become famous have, we find that have had serious drug problems, drinking problems, uh, depression, and have killed themselves. Uh, so they, too, see through uh, laughter and myrrh, not as the ultimate answer to life, but only as a band-aid to make life feel better for a time. Well, Solomon experimented with that. I guess he had his court gestures, gestures but in verse 3, he tells us that he also experimented with mood enhancers, we're going to call them. We're going to summarize it this way because he talks about wine, but today we have a whole bunch more different kinds of mood enhancers. 
He says, I searched my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. Now, ladies, I don't think he's talking about having that glass of wine after a long day of work. And what he's saying is he turned to wine as a solution to life. And I imagine, he again, he didn't just slog through a bottle, but with wisdom, he wanted to see, and probably with some, some degree of scientific uh, measurement, wanted to see what it would do for him. And so he committed himself to drinking wine because that was the, the mood enhancer of their day. Today, it would be probably pills. It would be other kinds of liquor, and other kinds of drugs, uh, which are becoming more and more popular and more and more legal for our generation. But Solomon said that by taking these things, they didn't really solve the problem. They didn't really answer his questions. It relieved the pain, that's true, but only chemistry changes. Life didn't change. And that's what we need to realize when we do turn to these things. Uh, we realize that they're temporary. It does change the chemistry of our body so that we feel good for a time. And we're thankful that there are certain drugs out there to help us relieve pain and so forth and symptoms of some of the things that we have. Uh, but it doesn't change our circumstances. We are left with the injury when the drug wears off and with the pain. So Solomon went on to experiment with building projects. Now, he might have been inspired by the fact that he built the great temple, the Solomonic temple. And uh, from that, perhaps he got inspiration that he could build many other wonderful things. And so he said he built himself houses. Houses, well, how many houses do you need, Solomon? You can only sleep in one at a time. He probably built a summer house, a winter house. Many of the kings in Israel had a house for cooler weather up in uh, northern Galilee. Uh, when we were there, we saw the king Agrippa's house there. And he also had a house on the sea uh, in Tiberias. And, um, and so Solomon perhaps had houses around the country in different locations. And he planted vineyards, vineyards of grapes, so he could make wine easily. And he made gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I bet there's a lot of people here who just like to plant and get a lot of joy out of planting and having gardens. We do. Um, in Texas, it's a challenge. <laughs> but for about two months, we enjoy planting things. And then we have to watch them dry up and die starting in June. But um, we, we love to plant things and have them grow. And uh, it, it's just a wonderful thing to watch God raise these plants up and turn them into beautiful things. And then he made water pools from which to draw water and the growing trees of the grove. He used them to water these trees. So water was a precious thing in that country. It still is today. And there are certain basins like the Pool of Siloam and the Pool of Bethesda and the, the Hezekiah's Tunnel were fed the city of Jerusalem all given to moving water around, mostly for people's benefit. But Solomon was so wealthy, he was able to have an irrigation system to water his plants. Wonderful constructions, marvelous constructions in his day, something that uh, we would marvel at even today. So he tried the building projects. It kept him busy. It kept him moving. And then he says in verse 7 that he tried the status symbols. So he acquired male and female servants. Well, other people had, but not as many as him. And had servants born in my house. So he had such control over these families that the children were even born to uh, his household. And he said, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks 
than all who were in Jerusalem before me. Wealth was largely measured in some of these agrarian societies by how many animals you had, and he's saying that he had a lot of animals. In fact, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 10, it talks about the number of cattle he had, and it says in 1 Kings 4 that his daily tribute at the temple was 30 oxen and 100 sheep. Now, you got to have a lot of animals if you're going to kill 30 oxen and 100 sheep a day, right? So this guy had money to burn, animals to burn. He had money to burn, and he could buy anything that he wanted, and he had everybody he needed to do the work around him. He had the latest gadgets, the latest gizmos. Uh, he had and people who could fix them. So uh, he was surrounded by life, uh, labor-saving conveniences. And his wealth, well... Uh, Kings also tells us, the book of 1 Kings tells us that he was one of the wealthiest men in the world and that in his day, silver was like stone. It was so popular and so common. It was like stone. And some have compared his wealth uh, in today's standards and said that it would make him the wealthiest man alive today. So he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. You remember the Queen of Ethiopia came, uh, Queen of Sheba came up and gave him gifts. And so he was being brought gifts and tributes by the countries around him to get wealthier. He acquired male and female singers. Again, uh, the eight track wasn't enough and the CD wasn't enough. And, and then um, Pandora and Spotify wasn't enough. He had the real thing right there. And all he had to do is click his finger, not press a button. And he had singers. Pretty nice, huh? and musical instruments of all kinds. That's how the New King James reads. If you have an NIV, it says concubines, because the word there is a bit uncertain. Is he talking about musical instruments or concubines? The, the proper conclusion is probably that he had both. The scriptures, if he had a lot of musicians, he certainly had a lot of instruments. But on the other hand, the scriptures tell us that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he had a lot of both. He had everything he needed. 700 wives, 300 concubines, uh, figure that out on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think you would see one woman every two and a half or three years. Not really good grounds for intimacy, is it? So music to alter his moods and affect his moods, to cheer him up when he was down, uh, or just to avoid uh, the silence or his conscience. He had entertainment at his beck and call, like concerts of musicians. I imagine that would include uh, instant sporting events if he so wanted one. Uh, there was always something that had his attention to entertain him. You know, you go to these parks like Disney World or Six Flags or some of the other places around the country, and they're like their own little world, and everybody's having fun, and everything's exciting. But there's always the real world on the other side of the fence. And the ride always ends. And, but Solomon was able to keep things so busy inside his little domain that he didn't have to worry too much about what was, life was like on the other side of the fence. He was able to hide from the real world. And this whole issue with the concubines, well, you know, we live in a sex-crazed world, as, just as Solomon did. Four out of five song, songs that are copyrighted have to do with physical aspects of sex. 
And um, certainly he couldn't have been too fulfilled by his sex life if there were a thousand women involved. Well, the conclusions that he reaches are in the last part, which is what the, the scripture, a lot of the scripture that was read to you. And, and um, I just want to go through them pretty quickly here because it's a longer section. But um, one conclusion is that self-indulgence is futile. And he says that in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And real quickly, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity in a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. How about that? He says, I didn't hold back. I did everything I could. I used every resource. I lived it to the max. And guess what? It's just like nothing, just like a bubble popping, like grasping for the wind. So his first conclusion is self-indulgence is futile. It doesn't change the real world. It doesn't change your circumstances. It only hides them for a while. And then wisdom is futile as well, because he was a very wise man. And I believe that he approached this in life experimentally and was very wise. He's probably taking notes like a scientist, maybe. So he said, I turn, verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is no more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. There is more gain in wisdom than folly and more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For if the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How will the wise, how the wise dies just like the fool? So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, Solomon's here saying in those words, he's saying, you know, it's, it's good to be wise. There's an advantage in being wise. Uh, you come out ahead in being wise. But in the end, we all end up the same way. When we die, death is the great equalizer. And it doesn't matter how wise you are or how big of a fool you are. We all are equalized by by death. And um, so wisdom in that way is futile. His conclusion, enjoy your work, but don't worship it. Enjoy your work, but don't worship it. Look what he says in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. You see what he's saying? I worked hard. I built this kingdom. I built this business. I built this family. And when I die, I don't know where it's going to go. Is it going to go to my foolish brother? Is it going to go to my foolish business partner? Is it going to be inherited by my a foolish son? Where is it going to go? And so what was the use of building and building such a wonderful, great thing if it's going to go to fools in the end? So death is an equalizer. In verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair 
over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. So you're working hard on your project. You're working hard to improve your classroom. And, and the next teacher that comes along just undoes the whole thing. You remodel your house so carefully, uh, and then you, it comes a time you have to leave it, and they're just going to turn around and say, I don't like that color. That's outdated. And, and uh, I never have figured out what outdated means. You know, if you like it, you like it. But according to these TV shows, certain colors are in and, and so forth. And my wife tells me these are outdated now. So I think it's just a way of spending more money, don't you? Um, anyway, so... What, what is a man from all the, verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Here's a man working hard all his life. He brings his work home with him. He keeps him up at night. He's, he, you know, he goes to bed from work. He wakes up and goes to work day after day after day. There's nothing better. Now, here's his good words. You see, it's been kind of negative now, hasn't it, for two chapters? But here's a little light of some good advice, some cheerful advice. When you don't understand life, when your work doesn't make sense, when you wonder who's going to take, take it all after you go, here's how you can make it through the day with some wisdom. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. If you work and you work wisely, you can reap benefit in this life. You can enjoy your life and reap the benefits that work brings. And you can find joy in your work. Not only that, but you have reward for your work because it pays the bills. It pays the tuition. It, it buys the, the things in life that you, that make life a little bit more comfortable. We don't just have to sit back and moan our way through our job. He's saying you can actually enjoy it. He says the fool works and works hard, but, but uh, some of that benefit goes to you who are working hard, who are wise. So enjoy your work. And he understands that that enjoyment can only come from God himself. Because he says it is God who gives us this gift of work and God who gives us the ability to enjoy our work. You may not be having the best time of your life with your job, but have you thanked God for it? It's better than not having a job. Are you depressed about not having the job that you want or not getting the promotion that you want? I thank God that you have an income. Anyone working in America should thank God that they have an income. Even if you have to rely on disability or a social safety net, thank God that it is there because you have worked and others have worked. Just two weeks ago, I was in the poorest country in the world, in Africa. It's called Burundi. And in Burundi, if you're working, you make about a dollar a day. Most of the men there who we train are pastors and they live on a subsistence income and diet of a little piece of land that they farm for themselves. And um, we, so we pay for all of their training and the translator and the venue and their transportation fees, everything. 
is paid because their churches don't support them. Their churches don't have any money. And they don't have the bus fare to get from one side of the city to the other because that would take a day's wages. And that Starbucks coffee that you bought this morning on the way here was about three or four days wages for them. So you would think that this would be a depressed group of men. But if I could show you the video I took on the last day of our training, when we finally finished the video and had a little celebration ceremony, you would see the biggest smiles and the happiest men dancing around with, with the joy of the Lord in their heart, joyful for what they ha had and joyful for what we had just given them in, in their training. The level of your joy doesn't depend on the level of your things or the things that we use to mask the pain, like um, wealth or, or drugs or wine or women or song. Uh, it depends on knowing that God, what God gives us is a gift from him and finding joy in doing what he has given us to do and enjoying the reward that comes with it. You know, Jesus, he recited the Old Testament that taught, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. In other words, oxes tread out grain, but they're hard-working animals, but every now and then let it eat some of the grain. He deserves it. And I think what Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is telling us is to every now and then enjoy life. Take some time to enjoy the life that God has given you. We had a seminary professor preach this once in seminary, uh, Don Sanukian. And he was preaching this from Ecclesiastes, and he said, um, you know, don't just get one scoop of ice cream, get two scoops of ice cream, he was telling us students. So we started calling him Two Scoops Sanukian. Every now and then, get two scoops of ice cream, or just get some ice cream, some of you, and learn to enjoy what God has given us in this short life. We do see his grace, and we do see his blessings. And remember that Jesus came and said, I have come that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. That means that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose from the dead to give us eternal life if we would simply believe in him as our Savior, and that eternal life is ours forever. But it's not meant to be a miserable, miserable life. He says that you might have it abundantly. He's saying that each, he wants each of us to enjoy an abundant life, a life lived in the presence of God, lived in companionship with God, lived in the love of God, and that's an abundant life. And that's available to each of us today through Jesus Christ. So have you placed your faith in him as your savior? And are you trusting him to have an abundant life instead of in things or people or circumstances? That's the question. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the word of God that uh, weans us away from the things of this world, especially the things that we don't understand, and points us to God who made us and made the world and understands all things. And keep us from living a life apart from him, Lord, um, in futility, um, in enigma or puzzlement about what things are going on. Help us to trust in you. Help us to enjoy the life that you gave us, the work that you've given us to do. Help us to find joy in it and in the rewards that it brings to life. And if there's anyone here who needs to know Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray today would be the day that they... Say, yes, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. I trust you for eternal life, and I look forward to living an abundant life with you. And now these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.